We come now, brethren, to the preaching of God's word. I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Hebrews and the 10th chapter. The book of Hebrews and the 10th chapter. And I will be reading and then preaching this morning on verses 11 through 18. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. We continue this morning by God's grace, our series through the book of Hebrews. I invite you to read along silently this morning as I read aloud this text, beginning in verse 11. Here we read, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with him, After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your kindness and grace. Thank you for bringing us here in your providence to hear your word preached in the presence of your congregation. And we would ask now for the work of the Holy Spirit, that he would sovereignly move among us, that he would open our minds and our thoughts and enable us by his power to contemplate these deep mysteries of the faith, to understand them and to apply them to our own lives and to our own congregation in such a way that you, Father, are honored and the Lord Jesus Christ receives all the glory. And so we ask now for the work that only you can do. Help us to hear and to receive the word of God. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Brethren, here in our sermon text this morning, the writer to the Hebrews contrasts the ministry of the Levitical priests with the ministry of Jesus, both in terms of priestly activities and spiritual outcomes. Priestly activities and spiritual outcomes. For while both priesthoods played important roles in the unfolding of God's redemptive purposes, These two priesthoods differed in respect to these two areas. For when we consider the activities of the Levitical priests, we are reminded of those requirements that were imposed upon them to labor unceasingly at the task of offering up sacrifices for their own sins and for those who were in need of priestly intervention. In fact, the text begins by reminding us here in verse 11 that every priest stood daily at his service. And the priest stood daily at his place of divine service for one reason, and that is because the people sinned daily. 
He ministered daily because the sins of the people were a daily occurrence. And this created the pressing need for the priest to be continually offering up daily sacrifices, which in turn served merely as a temporary covering for the people's sins. And not only were these priests required to offer up these sacrifices daily, which reminded them daily of their sins, but they were also to offer sacrifices repeatedly. I want you to hear these words, daily or constantly, repeatedly, or with the understanding that one sacrifice for sin would never be enough. Never be enough. You could never say as a priest, this is my last and final act. Would never be enough under the Levitical sacrificial system. In fact, the writer states here in verse 11 of chapter 10 that the priests were offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. Think about that. Repeatedly the same again and again and again. Now, brethren, maybe you've been sitting here for the last couple of months hearing us preach on the sacrifices of the Old Testament, and you've been thinking week after week after week, Pastor Jeff and the other men have been preaching on sacrifices. When are we going to stop talking about sacrifices? Well, we might have that frustration in a very small sense, but imagine the frustration that the people would have living with that for years and lifetimes. They were to offer sacrifices repeatedly with the understanding that, again, those sacrifices would have to be repeated the very next day. The very nature of the Levitical sacrificial system testified to the fact that one sacrifice had no more efficacy than another, and that every sacrifice was merely the same sacrifice which had to be repeated so many times over. And so therefore, there was a repetitiveness, repetitiveness about this. You might even suggest that there was a mundaneness about it. There was a regularity about it. There was a frequency about it that could in some ways get monotonous there was a repetitiveness associated with the Levitical system that made it tedious, and I'm going to even suggest to you exhausting as a requirement that the priest had to stand and make daily. And yet what was most discouraging about the Levitical sacrificial system and what must have been most frustrating to the priests who ministered under it was the outcome that it produced. The outcome that it produced for while these sacrifices were made under the sacrificial system, providing a temporary covering for sin, the writer assures us here at the end of verse 11 that they could never take away sin. It could never remove it. And of course, we already know why this was the case. The writer reminded us back in verse 4 of this same chapter that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And thus, in one sense, the outcome of these sacrifices was better than what it would have been if there had been no sacrifices, but it was very far from what was truly needed 
for a full assurance of sins forgiven. That's what was really missing in their order of worship was a assurance of pardon, right? There was never that full assurance of, of, of sins forgiven. It was still far from what God had promised his people under the new covenant back in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, which had spoken and had quoted again and was quoted again in Hebrews 9. And so when it came to the ministerial activities and the outcomes of the Levitical priesthood, everyone understood this, that no amount of laboring, no amount of striving, even this, no amount of ministry would never, ever be enough. There was no sense of completion. There was no sense of fulfillment upon which to rest one's assurance and comfort. And yet, let us notice here, beginning in verse 12, that the writer reveals to us, in direct contrast to what has just been considered the activities and the outcome of Christ's ministry as our great high priest. The activities and outcome of Christ's ministry as our great high priest. And how did Christ's ministry differ from the activities of the priests who ministered under the old covenant? Well, Christ's activities were different according to verse 12, because when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And therefore, rather than continuing the process of offering up sacrifices daily, Jesus Christ broke away from the pattern. I want you to think about it. A clean break. He broke away from the pattern and from that practice completely. And rather than choosing to stand up daily offering the same sacrifice repeatedly, Christ rejected that activity altogether. I want you to think about how radical this is. He broke the tie. He changed the activity. He didn't come to simply perpetuate what had been done before or to simply achieve the same outcome. Rather, he came with the full intention of offering himself as that one thing that would make the difference forever, as that one thing that would be needed for all time. In fact, as Brother Mark stressed last week when he explained verses Five and six of this chapter, Christ came into this world with the understanding that his father took no pleasure in the repeated sacrifices of the Levitical system. Christ also understood that the father had prepared for him a body by which Christ himself could not only make an offering, but could be that final and complete and perfect Offering, And so unlike the priests who stood daily offering sacrifices, Christ came into this world to offer up but one sacrifice. The sacrifice that would be for all time. For all time. And why would it be for all time? Well, it would be for all time because it would never need to be repeated 
And there's a reason why it would never need to be repeated. It would never need to be repeated because the Father would be so satisfied with it that no other sacrifice would ever be required. The Father would see that sacrifice and say, that's it. That's it. That satisfies my demands for justice. That completely fulfills the requirements of righteousness. That is perfect. Perfect. Why would it be so effective? Because as the writer states here in verse 12, it would be a single sacrifice for sin, meaning that through this one sacrifice alone, as I just said to you, all the demands of divine justice would be fulfilled. The eternal redemption of God's people would be fully and finally purchased. And yet how could just one sacrifice make all the activities of the Levitical priesthood absolute and unnecessary. Think about that. Years and years and years and years and years of daily sacrifices, and now one sacrifice is offered, and it uproots the entire system? How is that possible? Because by being willing to offer up himself for all time as that one single sacrifice, Jesus forever ended the need for any further sacrifices at all. Because think with me, when the greatest sacrifice has already been made, there is nothing left to satisfy. There is nothing left to appease. There is no more need for a priesthood like the one that existed before. And of course, Jesus Christ, by his own actions, after he offered himself up to the Father, communicated that nothing more was needed. And how did Jesus communicate this? He didn't have to communicate it with words, although he did, if you think about it. What did he cry from the cross? It is finished. It is accomplished but he also communicated it by his own actions. For well, we read here at the end of verse 12 that Christ then sat down at the right hand of God. And no doubt what is being communicated, what is being conveyed here is not that Jesus then rested. I know that's sometimes suggested by some and by some commentators that Jesus was so exhausted that he just kind of fell back into a seat and said, well, I finally did that. So glad it's over. No, this scene is a scene of Christ in victory and strength, assuming his throne on the right hand of the Father. For by declaring here in this verse that Christ is now seated on the right hand of the Father, the writer is not suggesting that Jesus is now resting or not working as a high priest. Think about that, that he had somehow stopped working because he's still working. Remember that. It can't be resting from his work. No, declaring here in Hebrews 10, 12, that Christ sat down at the right hand of the Father, the writer is saying that Christ's activity in heaven is now different than that of any other priest in the past. 
For instead of striving constantly to make sacrifices that can never remove sin, Christ is now remaining. He is now reigning. In fact, this is the significance of the throne. He is reigning and he is doing so based on what he has already done in removing the sins and the transgressions of his people for all time. And so not only is Christ a greater priest than the Levitical priests were, but he is now occupying and fulfilling a role that none of the Levitical priests could have ever fulfilled. And that is the role of a priestly king. And this really ties up a lot of the themes that we've already seen in the book of Hebrews God is just not giving us a priest, a greater priest. He is giving us a priestly king or a kingly priest. And a kingly priest must have a throne. And it delights God. It delighted God to give his son a throne. Brother Kevin read Psalm 2 this morning as our call to worship. It was the father's delight. The father said to the son, ask of me and I will give to thee whatever you want, son. I'll give you the nations as your inheritance because I delight in you. I have set you upon the holy hill. You are the delight of my eyes. You are the priestly king that I have established as our king and priest. Christ brings a, a spiritual outcome that the sacrifices of the old covenant system could never achieve. Never achieve. Now, what is the outcome then of Christ's work? Well, I want us to notice here in verses 12 and 13 that the writer speaks of two outcomes and if you're looking for new suggestive edifying material in Hebrews 10 this is it what's the outcome well he speaks of two outcomes one outcome that is still in the process of unfolding and one that has already been perfected and will already or will, excuse me, will ultimately be fulfilled in the lives of God's people. The first outcome that the writer mentions here is the ever-growing, ever-widening dominion of Christ's rule. Let me repeat that again. The first outcome is the ever-growing, ever-widening dominion of Christ's rule. For according to our text here in verse 12, Christ is not only seated at the right hand of the Father, but notice this, he is waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Now there's so much that comes to mind when I read of this particular statement in Scripture. First of all, let me just say, I didn't intend to, to mention this until a late hour, but yesterday in our men's group, we were talking about a godly man is a patient man, right? A godly man is a man who waits 
for the will of God to unfold, for the purposes of God to unfold. Notice we have here the characteristics of our ascended Lord being that of waiting. The Son is waiting on the decree of the Father to be fulfilled, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. I couldn't miss that word waiting, gentlemen. Waiting, patiently waiting for God's will to be performed. Uh, but also here we see this whole idea of Christ's enemies being made a footstool for his feet. And at first glass, uh, glance, excuse me, we might be tempted to think that this reality that's being spoken of here in this verse only applies to the future, right? When you hear this language, you think this is some future thing only, and that nothing is happening to extend Christ's dominion over his enemies at this time. In fact, this is how this passage is sometimes interpreted by commentators. The way they'll respond to this passage is saying, Christ is basically just sitting in heaven, watching things unfold, but one day all of his enemies will be made his footstool, right? That's not what's being said here, though. This is already happening and this is progressively happening, and it will fully and completely happen. If we see this as merely a future activity, then we do Christ a great service. We, we fail to see what is happening through the gospel's advance even today. For while it is true that all of Christ's enemies have yet to be subdued, it is also true that this has been happening progressively since Christ instituted his kingdom. For as long as Christ has ruled as our priestly king, his enemies have fallen at his feet. Do you believe that? Do you believe that some of Christ's enemies have already fallen at his feet? Have already bowed the knee to him? Do you believe that his kingdom has already been increasing and growing? Do you believe that his kingdom even now, even though it may not appear that way to human sight, is now marching forward? Well, the answer is, yes, all of those things are true. In fact, there's a fascinating passage that we often quote around Christmas time, unfortunately, just at Christmas time. Isaiah chapter 9 and verses 6 and 7, and I'm going to read them to you. And when you hear me read them, you're going to recognize them immediately. And I want you to hear what the end of this passage says about Christ ruling and reigning. Isaiah 9, beginning in verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. You know those words. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the increase of his kingdom, there shall be no end. No end. In other words, his kingdom shall always be 
increasing. That's the nature of the kingdom, right? It's always increasing. It's always expanding. It's always growing. It's always conquering. Knees are constantly bowing to the lordship and the kingly priesthood of Jesus Christ every single day. Every single minute, I would suggest to you, his kingdom is expanding and his enemies are falling. They're not all falling at one time, but they're falling. They're falling. And therefore, any thought that Christ's kingdom is now not conquering and that Christ is merely waiting with no spiritual activity taking place at all for some future kingdom that still must be established before any of his enemies can be subdued is not in alignment with Isaiah 9 and with many other passages in Scripture for the outcome of Christ's great victory and the influence of his dominion as a king can be seen even today. Even today. In fact, I noticed some of you earlier when I made the statement, do you believe that some enemies are falling before Christ even to this day? And at least two of you in this congregation pointed to themselves. We were once his enemies, weren't we? We are among that number who are being conquered and subdued. It's happening all the time. All the time. But of course, what the writer is ultimately pointing to here in verse 13 of Hebrews 10 is to that, that final day when none of Christ's enemies will be left standing. Or needless to say, that great and final day, that still future day will come and all of his enemies will be made his footstool. A day which Christ has, according to the text, been waiting for as a gift from his Father. But the outcome has already been decreed by God the Father and we can be certain of this and Christ is now reigning uncontested. I want you to hear what I just said, and I want you to think about it carefully. Is Christ now reigning uncontested? Maybe there's a little thought in the back of your mind where you're thinking, well, maybe not completely uncontested. Really? There are some who have the power to contest him. What is holding up God's purposes? Is it Christ's lack of power and resources, or is it the purposes of God. What is it? Christ now reigns uncontested. He will continue reigning uncontested. And his purposes will be fulfilled uncontested. Right now. Right now. I can't tell you why things have unfolded the way that they have and why they still unfold the way they do. But I tell you this. He is uncontested. There is nobody who opposes him except the purposes of his father. And they are not opposing him in the sense that we think of opposition. They're furthering his glory and power. Then the second clear and certain outcome of Christ's work is the fact that he has obtained our perfection as his people. He has obtained our perfection as his People, we heard about that in the reading of the gospel today. 
We read in Jude, verse 24, that Christ, because of his work, is now able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Even now, we sense the perfecting work of Christ within us through the ministry of Christ We are being changed. We are being transformed. The work of sanctification is ongoing. The writer states here in verse 14 of Hebrews 10 that by Christ's single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Notice the language there. Notice the order of the language there. We are already perfected. The work is already done. It's not dependent upon us in any sense. It's it's done. It's completed. And yet at the same time, it is being progressively done in those who are being sanctified. Of course, this is an important verse because it assures us, us who Christ offered himself up for, that we shall be perfected through the process of sanctification And our sanctification is the outcome of Christ's victory. I want you to think about that. We don't always think about our sanctification being a product of what Christ did. But when Christ obtained the victory for us, he obtained the guarantee that we'll be changed. That we'll be completely and wholly satisfied, sanctified, glorified. The ultimate outcome will be not just his revelation of glory, but our full and final glorification as well. And I ask you this morning, are these activities, are these outcomes of Christ's ministry significant to what we've been considering over the past few chapters about the new covenant? Yes, they are. For not only do these outcomes and these activities distinguish the work of Christ from that which was performed by priests under the old covenant, but these activities and outcomes mark the inauguration and the substance of the new covenant through Christ himself. How do we know this? We know this because the writer reveals here in verses 15 through 17 of Hebrews 10 that this is the teaching of the Holy Spirit. Or in other words, God tells us through the Holy Spirit's work that these things would happen. Notice verses 15 through 17. He writes here, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the new covenant that I will make with him After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And here the writer appeals to the infallibility of the Holy Spirit in testifying to what Christ has done. Or in other words, we can just put it this way. The writer is saying, and the Holy Spirit also testified to the things that I've been telling you about what Christ would do. About the outcomes and the activities that Christ would accomplish. How Christ would make the new covenant of reality. For by acting as he did, by offering himself as he did, Christ delivered God's promise of the new covenant to his 
people. And therefore, when we consider the kingdom that was established when Christ sat down at the right hand of God, we are justified in saying this. We are now under the new covenant, which God has promised to his people after those days. For when Christ began his reign under the new covenant, the days of the old covenant were finally over. I suggest to you that this is the declaration in the book of Hebrews that the old covenant is finished. It's gone. It's dust. It's dust. It's buried. Christ now reigns over the new. When Christ made his single and once for all offering for sin, Jesus ensured that our perfection through the work of the Holy Spirit was accomplished. He guaranteed that the rest of the new covenant promises to us would be fulfilled as well. For it would be the spirit who would put God's law in our hearts, right? The spirit and God's law in our hearts would be treasured and held dear. It would be the Holy Spirit who would write God's law on our minds so that we would not only know the law, but delight in it and meditate upon it. And then not only does Christ's current rule over his new covenant kingdom guarantee our spiritual perfection and a new relationship to the law, but it also provides us with the full assurance of our that our sins and lawless deeds are remembered no more. Remember that statement here at the end of the passage. I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. For if there is one spiritual blessing that was uniquely and eternally secured by Christ's single sacrifice for us, it is the blessing of forgiveness. The blessing of forgiveness. For once we are extended God's forgiveness, it can never be withdrawn. Once we possess this assurance, it can never be taken from us. For there is now no need to appease God. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. In fact, the, the writer makes it clear here in the last verse of our text. Notice verse 18. That the forgiveness that Christ obtained for his people has eliminated the need for further sacrifices altogether. For the writer states here, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. There is the statement that I think some people still are looking for and still haven't heard yet. There's no need for sacrifices. Forgiveness has made those needs obsolete. You sometimes hear people in discussions about eschatology say, maybe one day in the millennium when it comes, they will reinstitute sacrifices in Jerusalem. Have you, have you heard comments like that? Well, let me assure you that will not happen. Because the forgiveness offered through the Lord Jesus Christ has eradicated the need 
for any such sacrifices. Pastor Massey's getting a little controversial this morning. <laughs> and of course, this is the final appeal that the writer is making in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 18. For if we already know that forgiveness has already been obtained through Christ, it is not only foolish to seek it elsewhere, but it's a rejection of that salvation that God has provided through the willing sacrifice of his son. And sadly, many of the Hebrew readers who received this letter were on the verge of rejecting Christ's sacrifice for sin, one-time sacrifice, and they needed to be warned against going back to the old system and to the repetitive sacrifices of the old, which would have been an insult to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I warn you, as the writer to the Hebrews warned you, do not reject the sacrifice that Christ has made. Do not reject the provision of forgiveness that is made through Christ and his cross. Therefore, beloved, when we look carefully at what Christ accomplished through his activities and through the associated outcomes of that, we can see that his work was entirely different from that of the Levitical priesthood. And I, yes, we are wrapping this section up. And yes, we will be moving on beyond the priesthood, believe it or not. But it is so important that we understand this. Why would the writer spend so much time on this if it were not absolutely critical? It needs to be ingrained in our minds. We need to understand these principles. The, the essence of Christ's work and the essence of the new covenant is found in these truths. For they were ministering daily to perpetuate a system that once had a purpose. But that old system is now powerless to achieve anything close to the spiritual relief that the people truly needed. Whereas Christ came offering a single sacrifice for the specific purpose of instituting a far greater and better covenant. A covenant that would not only extend his sovereign rule as a priestly king, but one that would ensure our forgiveness and eternal redemption. What an amazing portrait of Jesus Christ. Right, throughout this whole book, but especially here in this section, what an amazing portrait. How, how unique he is, how wonderful he is. What he has accomplished for our souls is beyond description. How could we even think for a moment with our rational minds about turning back? Turning back. We should only be moving forward. Moving forward. Not delaying to come to Jesus Christ. Let us... As the psalmist said in Psalm 2, which was read by Kevin this morning, let us see the Son for who he is, God's kingly priest. Let us embrace him, the psalmist says. 
let us kiss him. Have you ever had somebody in your life who was so special that the moment that you saw them, the first thing you wanted to do was to kiss them, kiss them. The psalmist encourages us to see the son in Psalm 2 and embrace him. Kiss the son, kiss the son. Because Jesus Christ is most generous in his love for us. He is most generous in what he bestows to us. May we kiss the sun this morning in our hearts. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We would ask that you would use it to build us up and encourage us and to give us strength that we might desire above all things to see Christ and to honor Christ for who he is and to embrace him, to have strong affections for him, to kiss him. For one day, Father in heaven, that's what we'll do. We'll embrace him and be embraced by him he will kiss us and we will kiss him bless us as a people through your word today in Jesus name amen